Welcome to Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Can, author of the number one best-selling book, Sensitivity is Your Superpower, How to Harness Your Gifts, Fulfill Your Purpose, and Create a Life of Joy. And also, if you are new to my channel, uh, I don't normally sound like this uh, raspy voice. I must be emulating uh, multiple Charlie's Angels or RFK Jr. or somebody <laughs> because I've been like this for about two weeks. Um, but anyway, I'm excited today because we have a, a wonderful uh, Light Warrior Radio guest, and I'll tell you about him in just a minute. So if you are new to my channel, um, I have a free gift for you. It's called the Sensitive Soul Empowerment Guide. Three ways of navigating your way to more peace, positivity, and personal power. So you can basically do your mission here on Earth and also enjoy your life in the process. So it is at www.sensitivesoulguide.com and you can get a free copy of that. Um, and today, what we are going to be talking about is Questioning Spirituality. And this is a fairly new book by my colleague and uh, wonderful friend, Eldon Taylor. Um, he is a mind power expert and a New York Times multiple best-selling author. He's written 14 plus books, created over uh, 500 audio, video, personal motivation, uh, motivation programs. Um, his earlier best-selling books include Choices and Illusions, How Did I Get Where I Am and How Do I Get Where I Want to Be. Uh, I'm often quoting uh, that book uh, in, in, in many podcasts and telesummits and things like that. Uh, the other books like I Believe, When What You Believe Matters, Mind Programming, From Persuasion and Brainwashing to Self-Help and Practical Metaphysics, one of my favorites. Uh, what Does That Mean? Exploring Mind, Meaning, and Mysteries, and What If? challenge of self-realization and one of the books that you know was um, I think probably required reading as of the last three years as gotcha uh, you know and and it's uh, uh, let's just say it's uh, all about kind of some of the stuff we're seeing in the world today that if we knew ahead of time of, of uh, what's going on in, in the media manipulation things like that then some of us may not maybe have fallen prey to some of that fear-mongering and things like that going on so for 15 years Ellen has hosted the popular radio show of uh, provocative enlightenment He's also the inventor of patented InnerTalk technology and founder of Progressive Awareness Research, Inc. Eldon has appeared on numerous television and radio shows, regular guest expert on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie, uh, lectures around the world. And for more information, check out eldontaylor.com, E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. And today we're going to talk about questioning spirituality. And here's the funny thing. You know, I'm known as spiritual teacher, light medicine teacher, things like that. But there was a time that I was very religious, very, very religious, um, and um, went to university. And apparently, I guess you get unreligious there. But um, I met a man who then became my husband later, and he was an atheist. And uh, he challenged my beliefs. And he was a very logical, very bright man. I was, you know, A-plus student as well. Um, and he questioned me a lot on why I believe what I believe. And uh, he was very good at the debate. I was not. I didn't have really good answers for him. In fact, he said things like, did you know your church, meaning the Catholic church, was responsible for thousands of deaths through the Christian crusades? And I'm like, uh, no, they didn't teach us that in church. <laughs> and he says, there's a lot you don't know. Right, because he's he's really into history, so I ended up being very uh, embarrassed, but also shamed. I felt shame for believing in something that that it had, you know, an organization that did all these atrocities. 
uh, since then learned even more. But anyway, um, I just lost my belief. Um, and I said, oh my gosh, it's, everything's a lie. So I just stopped believing in it. And I became an atheist as well because I thought that was a logical thing to do. And it wasn't until I became ill and felt like killing myself, you know, back in whatever that was, 2000, um, that fibromyalgia, car fatigue was down and out and um, crying to my, myself to sleep every night. And it was at that point that I thought, well, what's the point? I'll just kill myself, right? Like, there's no, there's no point in living. But something stopped me. And it was like this inner voice. It was my own voice, but it was like inner voice that said, you have a choice. It's just very simple, no emotion, just you have a choice. And I'm like, no, I don't. I argued with this voice. And it just kept repeating, you have a choice. Gently, softly. And I thought, what the F? <laughs> okay. So if I have a choice, if I made this choice, people are going to get pissed at me. You know, they're going to hate me, blah, 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 blah. And long story short, basically, I made that choice, which was to divorce my husband and um, reconnected with my spirituality, but not religion. And then everything changed uh, for the better, I might say, uh, for the rest of my life. It's been huge. So this is a really, really important book. Uh, questioning spirituality. So I'd like to now welcome my friend, Dr. Eldon Taylor. Thank you so much for being here. It's indeed my pleasure, Karen. And your your story gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. It's, you know, um, it's a very moving story. And I certainly understand why you experienced what you did. That's precisely what happened to my two sons when they went off to university. Wow. Wow, so fascinating. So tell us a story about, now you, you have written tons and tons of books. Um, why write a book on questioning spirituality? Well, you know, I guess I digress to begin with and share a little bit of my own experience. I, when I was a young person, I grew up in a, in a church, as you did. Um, my parents were quite religious, and they expected me to move through the church and eventually go on a mission and and I did all those things that a good son would do I you know uh, became a member of the priesthood uh, I'd spend wow. my son I'd spend Sundays blessing the sacrament uh, it was you know I was a junior assistant scout master but I had a lot of questions and uh, I, I wasn't getting answers and but I look forward to when I would have formal seminary training because I'd expect that I'd get the answers then. Well, I'm a sophomore in high school, and in those days where I lived, seminary building was next to the high school. Um, it wasn't on school property, but the two campuses were adjacent one another so I my seventh period class was seminary and I went to seminary excited I've got these questions you know I I, I, I want some answers to them they're simple questions you know if God's all-powerful can he build a rock so large you can't lift it if he's all <laughs> if he's all good why didn't he create Adam with a perfect will you know instead yeah, right. of a deficient will. It's, you know, they're, they're young people questions that exactly. we all have, all right? 
And so I took them to seminary, and I had lists of them. Uh, well, the bottom line is I did well on all the exams. I turned in all my papers. I was a straight-A student. And, you know, when grades came, I got an F in seminary. Well, I oh couldn't gosh. believe that, so I took everything to the principal of the high school. Here's my exams, here's my papers, here's my works, and look at the grade I get. It had to be a mistake. Wow. So they called the seminary president and my seminary instructor, uh, Mr. Pedersen, bless his heart, because I'm glad this happened. I don't want anybody to misunderstand. It wasn't, wasn't a happy experience at the time, but it did have a formative impact on me that worked out in the long run, I believe. But at any rate, they came over and essentially said I was a disruptive influence on the class. And uh, they would give me my A if I never came back. Oh, oh too funny. You know, I, I'm, I'm a kid and I've basically been excommunicated. Uh, that's how it felt, you know. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And, oh boy, did I ever rebel, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I rebelled. And uh, so let's let's fast forward. My two boys uh, went off to university. Now I'm a very spiritual person now um, because of life experiences on it. I had a, you know, I'm. A, I'm still a kid, and, and I'm taking my girlfriend, I'm digressing a little here, sorry, but I'm taking my girlfriend to a dance. And um, first, I've got to stop and see these people that live in Woods Cross because their son has run into the back of my car, they don't have insurance, but dad's going to pay for the bill, and I've got the bill with me. So I'm driving into Woods Cross, the car dies right smack on the railroad tracks. Just as you bridge up over these railroad tracks, the car dies. Like a movie. I mean, instantly, the signal arms start coming down. The lights are flashing. The you know, bells or whatever are going off. And I look down that railroad track, and here's this locomotive just coming like crazy at me. Well, <clears throat> the gal is with me, Connie, uh, says to me, should we get out of the car? And I look at that and I say, no, I, I think we'll get drugged. Sit still. I'll try and get this off the track. So I turn to try and get the engine started. Bang. Next thing I know, time's passed. I don't know how much time, 45 minutes, an hour, I don't know. When I become aware, I'm standing in a field, 100, 150 yards, away from all these emergency vehicles. And uh, the car has been drugged down the railroad tracks. The cattle guard has crushed the driver's side of the car. The EMTs and, and emergency fire people have had to cut Connie out of the car. Oh and they're gosh. just taking her to an ambulance. Well, of course, I run to the car because that's the first thing concern in my mind is, is Connie okay? Uh, 
the railroad turned out paid damages to Connie's family because she was injured. She had serious whiplash in the accident. And because of that, there was a lawsuit. And I testified in the court about what happened. Everybody else did. Connie will tell you uh, that she had her hand on my leg when that train hit the car. I didn't have a scratch on me. I'm standing in a field, and the first recollection I have is all these emergency vehicles there, and the time that has taken place in between, I have no recollection. There's just, you know, it, it, it's just blank. Wow. Okay, well, that was a pretty significant event in my life that kind of said, you know, I think there is more going on than just this, you know, in this this carnate, here we are, physical, evolutionary product of natural selection. There's there's a lot more going on than that. And, and so my entire life, I've, you know, been spiritually inclined, and over time I did a a doctor of divinity, a PhD in pastoral psychology to go with the PhD in clinical psychology, and I became a master chaplain uh, with the Association of Psychotherapy, okay, mm. for Homeland Security purposes. All right, now, now we can come to my sons, because understand, I'm very spiritual. They have been raised very spiritual. They know this story of their father. You right. know, uh, we have not subscribed to an institutional religion. My wife is from India. She was Sikh, and she had bad, you know, uh, associations with people there. Again, not necessarily so much with the religion as to how people dealt with it. So, as a family, we looked at religion as spirituality. Do we believe in a higher power? How important is to live a good life? Uh, how important is it for us to contribute to to help one another and to help you know our neighbors, etc. All right, so they go off to college. And of course, at the same time, yeah, University of Washington, it's a public ivy, and they're both uh, computer scientists, and they're doing STEM classes, and both graduate with honors, and, and both are today working on some form of machine learning or uh, artificial intelligence. So these are two really bright young men, all right? And they're the same age? Is that why they're in university together? Uh, no, one works for Microsoft and the other one works for Qualtrics. So they're not working for the same company, but they're both working on similar projects. Right? Oh, but they went to school at the same time? Uh, no, the oldest one is five years older, so he was graduating when the youngest one was going in. Ah. Um, and, you know, the, the long and the short of it was they had an impact on one another. There were, you know... Uh, there, it's Seattle is, I, I live in Spokane, so we're about five, five and a half hours away. So we don't see them on a regular basis, but with both of them in Seattle, they were also cross-pollinating. And so, long story short is, you know, 
they essentially were made to believe that educated people are more capable of critical thought and that a belief in a higher power is just nonsense. It, it is something that only superstitious people, and or as Freud said, uh, it's something that the less critically minded, the less bright, hold to like a sugar-coated neurotic crutch. Well, obviously, Dad's not, wasn't too happy about that, but, you know, so we started conversations, and many of these conversations, one of my sons has written uh, an epilogue that is in the book, Questioning Spirituality, that talks about how we'd spend long nights, uh, sometimes, you know, over our scotch, talking about the nature of reality. And, and in order to reach them, what I had to do was go down the rabbit hole that they're in. And, and essentially, that's this whole argument of, of a, a, a mechanistic world uh, where, for all intent and purposes, I suppose you could think of us as meat machines. We, we've just evolved. And, and of course, the attacks that were made weren't so much on evidence as they were on dogma. Mm -hmm. So these attacks came after literal interpretations of, say, the Earth is only 7,000 years old. Well, you're not going to convince a science student that it's only 7,000 years old. It's, that's right. all there is to it. Um, and, and so a lot of the attacks went after, okay, let me tell you how you came to be. And here's the evolutionary theory of it. And uh, this, is, this is how life began. And um, this is how it evolved. And your consciousness is just a matter of, of uh, emergent properties. And emergent properties can be explained. We see them in how traffic behaves or how ants on an anthill behave. And uh, so all of these things, um, they, they fit a category of natural explanation. The fact that you are self-aware occurs only as a result of, uh, of seeing a difference in how others respond. It's, it's Hofstadter's strange loop, that Inus principle. As soon as I recognize that I'm not you, self-awareness naturally occurs. And that's a gross oversimplification. I go into it in great detail in the first half of the book. Uh -huh. Because in the first half of the book, I wanted to flesh out completely what these, and forgive me, so-called uh, brilliant erudites in universities who consider themselves to be the intellectual elite yeah. are telling our young people. Okay? All right. So once we got to that, and we had it pretty well laid down, then I began to take it apart. What's the problem with the emergent properties? Why don't mathematicians agree that there is ever such a thing as grand emergent property, which the mind would have to be? I mean, and so systematically uh, taking each of these areas, we began to discuss them. And then 
we started to look at the logic and reason behind both arguments. The atheist who argues there is no God has absolutely no more proof than the theist who argues there is a God. You can't prove that there is no God any more than you can prove in some you know, rational way that there is a God. So what we have to do is we have to infer from these two statements logically going forward. Neither of them are provable. So what, what logic would we use to decide whether to believe or not to believe? Well, you know, we have theoretical logic and we have practical logic and theoretical reasoning or practical reasoning as they're more popularly known. Theoretical reasoning, well, we're going to use that to figure out how to get to the moon. Maybe theoretical reasoning is something that we're going to do if we're philosophizing about um, the possibilities inherent in some mind experiment. But practical reasoning, well, that's what I'm going to live by. I'm going to use practical reasoning when I, you, you, your voice is raspy. You happen to be an MD, so this doesn't work. I'm going to change it. Let's, hypothetically, you get up in the morning and, you know, you don't feel good. You're not sure what it is. You had a little diarrhea. You had a little bit of a fever. But, you know, it could just be a, a, a quick flu. Do I go to the doctor and miss a day's work? Do I stay, you know, go to work? Uh, gosh, I don't want to, you know, I want to take care of myself, but I also don't want to. You're going to make a decision, a practical decision. And you, that practical reasoning criteria is how we live our lives. So right. is there... Is there a, a practical reasoning, a practical logic that we can apply to whether you believe or you don't believe? And that's where I went. Well, long and short of the story, and we can get into any of this if you'd like in detail, but the long and the short of the story is my sons came away understanding that the conflation of dogma with spirituality is a false-to-fact scenario. Um, there is a lot of dogma that accompanies organized religions of all sorts, not just Christian, but all religions. Mm -hmm. and, and some of this dogma, you know, it's like biblical material. Uh, a lot of it is... Uh, well, if you look at the Old Testament as a case in point, it's a, the Jewish people would tell you it's a record of Yahweh's intercourse with the Jewish people. It's a historical document. Okay? So as a historical document, uh, maybe we can look at the document and say, you know, how accurate is it? But when we look at some things in that historical document, uh, we have to take them, we have to look at them in context. We, we have to see, for example, that some of the rules that we might find in the Old Testament, 
like a woman being so unclean because of ministration that she's not allowed into the temple for 7 to 14 days. Uh, you, you might understand that through the lens of people with little sophistication scientifically, biologically, immunologically, etc. You, you, you might understand that there, that culture at that time, based on that, their knowledge, may well have seen practical reasons, whether they were right or wrong, to have this woman kept away from the greater, you know. So I think when we look at it, at, at these documents, if we're willing to look at them as metaphors, as historical documents in, and in context, they're still very powerful, they, all of them still very enabling. Um, some of some of the stories to this day um, actually inspire. They inspire me as I reread them. Um, but I I'm looking at the metaphor now. I I'm not saying that Abraham really took his son um, under the command of the Lord um, to kill him. Uh, I'm looking at that as a metaphor. And, you know, Amy Jo Levine, who's one of the better scholars about the Bible today, one of the foremost, I should say, as opposed to better, uh, is, is absolutely convinced that these things are metaphors. It, it, Job didn't lose his wife and family, da-da-da, and given a new wife and called that equal. Um, you know, that was one of the questions I had as a kid. How do you, how do you take somebody's wife and then say okay you won I, I I win the bet so here I'll give you a new wife and and somehow that's okay it, right. it just doesn't make any sense you know totally, totally. okay so but if I look at the me I look at it as a metaphor well it becomes a pretty powerful story a story of of sacrifice, a story of faith, uh, steadfast faith, you know. So uh, when we have this conflation of dogma um, with spirituality, it's easy to attack people who believe in an afterlife, believe in a higher power, believe in a God, what, what, whatever terminology you're comfortable with. Um, and my two sons saw that that was the instance. And so, as I started to say, my, my younger son has uh, an appendix in the book that talks about, hey, <laughs> we're no longer atheists, and Dad, you need to tell the world this. You need to put this into a book. Wow. Sorry, that's a, a very, very long answer, but that's how it came to be. Oh, yeah, thank you about that. that, that that's so neat. It's so neat. I mean, sometimes these arguments... Um, can just go on and on and on without, you know, just one person just criticizing the other. And just like in my university experience, I, I didn't have, let's just say, the data, you know, to prove or disprove what I believed in. Um, and, and what you've done is really looked at, like, from the point of view of those that would be atheists, right? This is the argument, this is the argument, this is the argument, and be able to, to actually 
um, speak in uh, if you say if like like their language. If you, you know what I mean? Like I had a hard time speaking as an atheist, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't. Uh, to, 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 there, I had no proof. I had no idea what to say, right? Um, but I thought it was really neat that that in your book you're literally like, hey, you know, th like really putting it out in the open. Uh, this is the problem, or or this is the issue um, that is coming up. It's it's so interesting. Um, I, I I can't tell you, Karen, how many times I've heard people, you know, tell stories like yours, especially since the book was released. It's uh, it's pretty common, and you know, our, our young people go off to university. Um, and you know, here is, you know, this is this is the final level of education, and standing in front of them is a professor, and and you know, we all look up to the professors at least in terms of their knowledge, and that's right. what we're there to gain. And you know, you've got some pretty malleable minds, and 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 unfortunately, I I don't I I think it's all too easy to accept the path, maybe because we were born to it, like in your instance, Catholic, and never question it because the people around us don't question it. Or maybe they hide it, you know? Uh, the, the faith I was born into uh, has got a very colorful history that I would never have known about had I remained inside. But when you start doing the research, you find out about massacres and not unlike Christian crusades. But again, that's, that's, we're mixing up things. We're, we're conflating the way some people behave um, with what the teachings are. When you, right. when you really look at the teachings of these doctrines, and, and all of them, uh, the teaching fundamentally comes down to a core that you could just call the golden rule, uh, basically. I think Jesus said it very well. Whatever you do unto the least of thy brother and you do unto me. It, it is about, you know, uh, brotherly love. It is about taking care of one another. It's, uh, But then from that, we start dividing. I think, you know, you could get... <clears throat> most people together and get them to agree that we would have a better world, we would all have more happiness if this was a world where we all took care of one another and whatever those needs were. But then you, you're going to slide real quick from that to, but what about those people that do this or that or believe this or believe that and we begin separating mm -hmm. where religions are concerned they have a exclusive bias for the large part Buddhism accepted um, maybe some forms of Hinduism but they're you know they have the exclusive bias so I have the only true church and if you don't join our church well you're not going to be saved and uh, right, right. they become really evangelical in that sense and and protective and because of that you grow up in it and you're never exposed to the dark side some of the history or some of the internal uh, contradictions that exist. Uh, 
you know, and, and that's unfortunate. I think it's incumbent on parents today to become more educated about what it is that they believe so that they are more prepared because we see more and more of our Gen Z and our millennials, uh, our younger people, defecting from religion. And yet at the same time, we see an increase in depression and suicide rates and so hopelessness. One of the great advantages to spirituality in a pragmatic sense is hope. Seligman did a lot of pioneering work. I know you know about him um, with his hopeless, helpless dog experiments. Mm. Uh, from that, you know, we he's basically pioneered what today we think of as positive psychology. Uh, we know today that that lack of hope directly affects not just the psychology, but impacts our physiology in negative ways. It, it, it literally can suppress the immune system, the endocrine system, the ANS system. Um, it, it makes us more vulnerable to disease. It, it, so one of the things that I talk about in questioning spirituality is all of the advantages that come as a result of having a spiritual belief. Um, you live longer, okay? Right, you, right. You're happier. Uh, you experience fewer diseases. Uh, you're more likely uh, to remain in a relationship uh, and have a long-term relationship. Um, the advantages, the studies that have been carried out, some of them even show that you're probably less likely to eat fast foods. You're you're more you're more health conscious, and and the honesty levels are higher. So uh, you're more willing to help your neighbor, uh, and all these things give rise to producing those great neurochemicals that right. make us feel good, that immunize us, that, you know, you're, you're a physician, I'm not, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, That's, so that is, you know, if on one side of an equation you have, okay, you're not going to live as long and you're not going to be as happy and you're more likely to to um, go through divorces, you're more likely to have a bankruptcy, you're more likely, okay, all those fun things, and on the other side of the equation, you're more likely to live a long, happy life, uh, you're more likely to be healthy, uh, you're more likely to be happy, I mean, come on, from a logical standpoint alone, if I just look at the pragmatics of right. our practical reasoning criteria, which right. one are you going to choose? Yep. To me, okay. But that's not to say that's the only reason to believe in spirituality is that you'll live longer and be happier, although that's a pretty good one in my book. Uh, no, there's a lot of other reasons to you know, look at this notion of a higher power, this notion of an afterlife, with a lot of traction because there's some pretty solid scientific evidence 
that suggests there's a whole lot more going on here. Um, not just the white crows, like what happened to me in the train accident, and I share several of those in questioning spirituality, mm -hmm. but in in research, um, research that has to do with uh, everything from psychic experiences to um, reincarnation. Erlander Harrells is a case in point. Studied over a hundred uh, young children uh, who had prior life memories of who they had been and where they lived and who their relatives were and. And he did some really tight uh, research, even trying to trick some of these young people by having a shield say, oh, I'm your uncle. Uh, do you remember me? No, you're not. I've never seen you before. <laughs> the data is incredibly powerful. Uh, it, it's hard to overlook that. Uh, right. You, we have these miracle stories. We, we, we. I can remember psychic experiences. I'm a boy, and I'm in kindergarten, and uh, recess. We go outside, and and a bunch of us shoot marbles. And I love shooting marbles. And uh, we're out there shooting marbles, and. Uh, I won a bunch that, that afternoon, and my pockets are stuffed, and the bell rings, and we're running back into the class, and I'm going through my pockets looking at them, and oh, I've got tiger eyes, and you know, uh, I'm, I'm excited. Oh, wait a minute. Where's my taw? The taw is your shooting marble. And anybody that's ever shot marbles knows you've got to have one that's just got the right size and stickiness to it. And this was my taw. And there, there wasn't another marble around that could substitute my taw. They'd be too slick or slightly too big or, you know, too shiny, too something. So I panicked. Well, as soon as class was over, boy, I ran right back out there. I searched and searched for my taw. I was broken hearted. Now I'm just, you know, I'm a kid, okay? Right. All right. But I mean, this taw meant a lot to me. I, you know, I'm standing there and I hear this inner voice and it says, close your eyes. So I closed my eyes that said, walk X number of steps straight ahead. I promise this is a very true story. I did. I walked that number of steps, I don't know, 10 steps, stop. Go to your left, six steps. And I, I don't remember how many steps, so I'm just, I'm telling a story now. So I go to my left, six steps, stop. Go to your right now, 10 steps, stop. Look down. I look down and there's my taw right at the end of my feet. Wow. You know, look, I don't have an explanation for that, but <clears throat> I've I've lectured to thousands of people and I've la I've asked people, how many among you have never had an experience that we we'll think of it as an anomalous experience, one that defies traditional explanations. Maybe you knew who was on the phone before you answered it. Maybe you knew who was on the door 
before you open the door. You know, how many of you have never had an experience? And seldom does anyone ever raise their hand. Seldom. Mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so you, you know, and, and then, of course, we have all the afterlife research, uh, the NDEs. Yep. Yeah, and now, you know, I have gone after some of the NDE reports because I think they're just fictitious. Uh, one NDE prominent person has essentially said everybody that comes back from an NDE has an IQ over 200. Well, come on now. That's just not true. Period. End of quotation. You know, the psychologist friend of mine who happened to be the state instrument man for years, uh, and, and by that I mean he gave nothing but uh, psychometric uh, instruments all day long, IQ tests, uh, you know, personality profiles, including the MMPI. Uh, okay. That was his job. He said to me, I wonder what instrument she's using. So... I mean, it's just a joke, but, but there seems to be, you know, there's always somebody that's going to take advantage of an area, and and we mm. we see that we see that in every area, uh, right. they're going to run forward and they're going to say, oh hey, I had an NDE, and you know da 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 da, and it's it's it it, it turns out that it's really not that. Do you um, think it's like a purposeful, like? You know, try I, yeah, to I think, mislead I, or try oh, to make them, if there's a movement look bad or something like that. I don't know. I, I generally think it's um, it's a sense of self-aggrandizement. It gets attention. It's an attention-seeking mechanism. Okay. There may be monetary, you know, uh, benefits involved. Uh, but it's, you know, whatever the reason is, and it not everything that looks to be gold is gold. It's that simple, okay? But that is true of science. You know, right. I, I remember the scientists in, at the University of Utah, we have cold fusion. What is that, 30 years ago? Maybe, no, more. I'm dating myself now, but that, you know. No, 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 we didn't have cold fusion. But boy, you know, you got... All right, so... Even in the so-called academic disciplines, we have fraud, we oh, yeah. have BS, and, and, and it gets passed around maybe for a long time. The Piltdown Man um, story is a, is, is a great one when you're looking at fraud and you say, well, why would you do that? You know, there's no such thing as a Piltdown Man, as two skulls put together and in a great discovery, and now all of a sudden oh, an anthropologist is that fame and glory. I don't know why people do some of the things they do. My point is simple. When an academic points at a, a reincarnation case that uh, can be explained, like Bridie Murphy, famous mm -hmm. one, yeah. and says, see, it's all a hoax. There's a reason for these things. You could just as well turn around and point to cold fusion or the Piltdown Man or any number of other hoaxes 
that have been perpetrated on the scientific community. There's exceptions, and that does not cause a uh, reason to throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's that simple. So the solid work of researchers like Erlander Harrells, uh, that's what they don't talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, the work of uh, Gary Schwartz with mediums at the mm -hmm. University of Arizona, um, they don't talk about that. Instead, they'll talk about the magician Randy and how he plays medium and is able to convince people he's a medium because he just plays on psychology. Okay, but that doesn't explain things like the Fox sisters who hear taps on a wall in a new home they've moved into and ultimately are able to respond and get these taps to identify yes and no and give answers by the number of taps and the taps essentially then reveal that their person that's tapping is buried in the walls of the house and so they get law enforcement finally to take them seriously and they tear out a wall and here's a corpse. Now these two sisters at the time are, 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 are children, they're in, you know, early teens, like 12, 13 years old. They've just moved into this house and, and this skeleton and remains, it's, it's 50, 60 years old. So, okay, come on, give me the reason for that. You see? Right, right. So, uh, in a lot of these stories I flesh out because once again, this becomes evidence on the side of do I believe or don't I believe? Because you, you essentially come down to this. Your first position is science and religion are inherently in conflict. Mm -hmm. The second position, science and religion are inherently not in conflict. Mm -hmm. The third position, and the one that I defend, science and religion are potentially in conflict, but not necessarily so. Um, the first and second position are clearly false. But we don't have to throw science out to be spiritually or religiously minded people either. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's so funny because, like, you know, some of the books and things I'm I'm reading lately, it's almost like science is like proving, <laughs> if you will, the existence of God. It does, it's like science and religion seem to me like hmm, religion is not spirituality to me. You know, at least the way I've looked at it now. Um, but definitely science and spirituality, there's a lot of things that actually, it's almost like saying the same thing in a way. Just one's in scientific speak and the other may be in a more, you know, esoteric kind of language from ancient texts and, uh, you know, things like that. But they're actually explaining the same thing. You know, one's talking about electromagnetics and what we would, you know, and then quantum and all this kind of stuff. And then if you look at some ancient books and you're like, well, actually, that's kind of sort of what they're saying, you know, if you interpret it that way. So I think that science and spirituality are actually quite a lot closer than science and religion, so to speak. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, in, in, you know, the fact of the matter is science gives us a window um, into not just how we live and, and the, the great advances that we have, but it gives us a window into metaphysics, 
Um, you know, we, we the other day I was having a conversation with a scientist friend of mine, and and we happened to be talking about consciousness, and we're looking for potential explanations of um, you know the nature of telepathy, uh, the nature of precognition, uh, and <clears throat> Jung's position on a collective unconscious. The possibility that, uh, as David Pete said in his wonderful book, uh, Serendipity, that uh, there's something going on, and that's why you can have researchers in separate countries working on the same project unbeknownst to one another yeah. and have simultaneous discoveries, yep. breakthroughs. Uh, you see, this is, you know, not not coincidence, but serendipitous. Uh, right. It's though, you know, they're tapping into some kind of collective unconscious. Uh, the work of Rupert Sheldrake and right. his M fields, you know, where a dedicated space is used to teach Morse code. And you watch that the average in the first uh, time that room uh, or space is used uh, in terms of the final grade. Well, let's just say that may say be a C. That would be average. But by the time you get to 10, the average is a B. And by the time it's been used 20 times, everybody's getting an A. It's yep. like there's some kind of morphogenic field, to use Sheldrick's terms. Okay? Um yeah, so we're having, this conversation. we're having this conversation, and 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 I'm going to come to you know hard science here, and we're talking about physics, and uh, he is a physicist, and uh, I talked about brainwave activity. You know, we we look at brainwave activity, we measure it. Uh, you know, with EEGs as a case in point, we we know it's electrical in its nature, plus some. Uh, it's more than just electrical, but we're now using AI to image what a person is looking at by reading the brain with MRI. So by seeing the activity of the brain, artificial intelligence is able to re-image on a screen what a person who's back to that screen is actually looking at. So there's there's some kind of standard pattern here in this electrical activity. And at first he said to me, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, how far do you think it goes? And I said to him, let's think about a radio wave. We have SETI who spent hundreds of millions of dollars and years and years and years and who knows how many volunteers, computers, looking for radio waves from <laughs> space, expecting that they may well find one that's maybe, what, 300 light years from here? <laughs> so when it arrives, it's 300 light years old, but we expect that it's still intact? Because if we don't have that expectation, there's no SETI, there's no reason to look for these radio waves, is there? <laughs> ah, you're right, he said. So I said, you know, 
maybe what we have is this this, this brainwave activity, the, these signatures of emotion or or thought patterns concentrated. Maybe they, you know, maybe they follow something like a radio wave. Maybe they coalesce somewhere, and maybe that's what people tap into in this so-called collective unconscious. So my whole point is this. I don't know that that's a theory that has any traction at all. What I do know is it gives me the opportunity, science, to reason in ways that provide insight. And so I, it, science becomes a very important part of our lives. But it shouldn't be, and that's the other half of the coin, I was just gonna it shouldn't say. be a negation of the quality of our lives. It should add to our lives, not subtract. It should be something we incorporate, not used to attack. Well, because science has become a religion, especially in the last three years. Unfortunately, in many instances, that's true, and we do have this, again, uh, cult, if you will, of oh, yeah. intellectual elites who choose to, you know, do nothing but attack religious people. Anthony Flew. Uh, when I was at university, philosophy was one of my favorite subjects, and I ended up in, with my... Uh, undergraduate with as many hours in philosophies nearly as I had in my major. But Anthony Flew, one of the most notorious atheists of the 20th century, had this wonderful parable that <clears throat> all these atheists like to use. And his parable was basically the story of the gardener. You know, so you got a couple of people, and they're they're coming through uh, this jungle, and they come upon this what appears to be a garden. I mean, vegetables grow in a row. Corn grows in this row, cabbage in that row, carrots in this row. There aren't any weeds. Wow. One of them says to the other one, "Must be a gardener." And the other one says, "No, these kinds of things can just happen in nature." <laughs> First one says. You gotta be kidding me. Look, there isn't a single weed. Look, these crops look perfectly tended. They're in absolutely straight rows. This this clearly there's a gardener. And the second one says, Well, if you think there's a gardener, let's just lay in wait and see. I'm telling you there isn't one. So they lay in wait and days pass and no gardener shows and First one says, I don't care. I don't know how they come or when they come. Maybe they're invisible, but, you know, there's yeah. a gardener. And the second one says, no, there isn't. I'll tell you what. We're going to put an electrified fence around this garden, and we're going to put dogs on the inside, and we're going to light it all up so we have a 24-7 watch on it. How's that? And the first one says, okay, that's fine. We'll catch the gardener. Still no gardener. Well, the moral of the story is you can argue all you want about the miracles of nature, but they could just come about naturally. And if you can't show me the gardener, there's no reason for me to believe there's a gardener. That was Anthony Flew's point of his parable of the gardener when he was atheist. Okay? Hmm. Now, before Anthony passed away, he wrote his final book. 
winner of the Christianity Today Book Award, There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. It's a marvelous book. It goes into science. It spends a lot of time in hard science, physics, chemistry. Okay, but here's the point of me sharing this story with you. The so-called intellectually elite attackers of religion and spirituality were quick to say, Flew wrote that only for the money. He got a million-dollar reward or award for that writing that book. He didn't believe any of that. I can't believe that. He just sold out. Hmm. In other words, here's the man that writes the book that, it, that they have used to champion, and now he says, nope, I've come to a different light. This is what I see. This is how it is. He didn't write the book for Christian Award. He wrote the book, and then the award was given. Okay? Uh, okay, okay. So, but, but they're going to accuse him. They're going to find some reason for him to have changed his mind because, after all, he must have sold out. He, we have championed him too much and held him up as such an intellectual elite member of our crew. He must have just sold out. He betrayed us for, uh, what is it, 10 pieces of gold? Isn't that the, the way we like to see it? So, once again... There's always a story behind a story, uh, but the bottom line comes down to what I wanted to do with questioning spirituality was to flesh this out so that you had on balance the pluses and the minuses, the truth and the nonsense, the conflations separated from the, the factual and a logical path that you could walk down and understand as... One of the critics of my book said, not critic, but one of the commenters, um, it's okay for me now to believe. She happens to be a scientist, a biologist, works in a lab, in a university where, according to her, she's been afraid to say she was a believer wow. because she'd be attacked. Wow, wow, wow. That's that's great. Oh, my gosh. That, what... What a huge work from the heart this has been, uh, Eldon. Thank you so much uh, for writing this book. And um, it's one of those books that, I, you know, looking back, it may have changed the course of my life having had that book. But, of course, my life is perfect as it is. So I'm not regretting that. But, it, but I'm, I'm sure this is going to change a lot of people's lives in a very positive way. Uh, any last uh, parting words before we share your website once more? It, it, the spirit of the message, the spirit of the book, the spirit of my life work, help one another, love one another, do what you can do to make life lighter for someone else. I promise you that's not, that's not a act that is going to do anything but reward you. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Eldon Taylor. Uh, you can find Eldon and all his books uh, outlined at eldontaylor.com, E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. And uh, he's a prolific writer, so look forward to um, having him on the show again for his next books that are upcoming, I'm sure. Uh, thank you again, Eldon, and thanks everyone for listening in and being part of this beautiful community. Much love.